Very good. Very good. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to dig into more of the Sermon on the Mount. Lord, thank you for providing for the Jacobis. Thank you for Rick driving the rest of the family here. Thank you, Lord, for the, the, the gift of life, new baby being born. Lord, all, all kinds of ways we've seen you working this last week. So would you come now and, and, and work also through your word? Lord, your, your, your word is the foundation of the church. We want our church built on the scriptures. And so, Lord, help us to learn, Lord Jesus, what you were saying in this section of the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to study this morning. Help us to hear what you were teaching and say yes and be shaped and molded by it so that we can glorify you, so that our love will be displayed, your love in us will be displayed, and so that uh, you'll be greatly glorified. So come into work, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And if you don't have a Bible, as we always say, go ahead and raise your hand. We'd love to bring one to you so that you can look along with us. We are passionate about going through the scriptures here. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse, and so you need to have a Bible in front of you so that you can follow along with us. And in the Bibles, we're... We're passing out Matthew chapter 5, 21. It's on page 810. So good. Did you get your hands raised? Everybody's got a Bible? Now here's an overview of what we've covered so far in the Sermon on the Mount. It's on your, in your notes and it's also up here on the screen. Just want to give you kind of so we can be flowing with Jesus' train of thought so we can see where he's going for this morning. But in verses 1 through 12, it's, it's the, what's called the Beatitudes. And it is so powerful because here he tells us how spiritually poor people, which is all of us, we are all spiritually, morally bankrupt. He tells us how spiritually poor people can be saved. And it's not by trying to be so good. It's not by trying to be super religious. It's by coming to him and admitting that we're poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So when we come to him and when we admit that we're poor in spirit, then we've got to trust him to provide the spiritual riches and he forgives us through his death on the cross. He brings the power of the resurrection upon us and starts to change us. And he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who satisfies us. We receive the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And our lives are changed and all the rest of the Beatitudes flow out of that. So that's where he starts off in verses 1 through 12. Then in verses 13 through 16, he tells us what our purpose is as those who've received the kingdom, who've been saved, even though we've been poor in spirit, what he's done in us. What's our purpose? And it's to be salt and light, right? Salt in our neighborhoods and workplaces to give people a taste of Jesus' goodness by our words and by our actions. And then to be light, to shine the goodness, the love, the glory of Jesus in our neighborhoods and our workplaces so people can come to Christ. That's our purpose, salt and light, verses 13 through 16. And then in verses 17 through 20, he wants to talk about the importance of the Old Testament. He wants to explain that. And he clarifies, he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He came to fulfill it. Every word in the Old Testament has meaning and significance for his people all the way through to the end of history. Because the Old Testament is where God is pointing ahead to all that he's going to do through the Messiah and through those that the Messiah saves. So the whole Old Testament is meaningful for us. And that brings us to verses 21 through 26. What is Jesus saying here? This is an amazing passage. Let's read it. Start with verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder. That's a direct quote from the uh, Ten Commandments, right? So he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Hey, lots going on here. I just want to start by pointing out, it's clear, isn't it, from the first two verses that Jesus is correcting something? You see that? He says, you have heard that it was said to the ancients, but I say to you, so Jesus is correcting something. What is he correcting? And you could easily think he's correcting the Old Testament. You could think that the Old Testament said, thou shalt not murder, but that all the Old Testament was worried about was just kind of outer actions, no, no focus on the heart. And Jesus is saying, you know, the Old Testament was just outer actions. I'm saying heart's the issue. You could think he's correcting the Old Testament. The reason that's not the case, though, is that the Old Testament also talked about the heart. Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Proverbs is full of warnings about anger against other people, for example. So the Old Testament was very much in sync with the fact that the heart is the issue. So if Jesus isn't correcting the Old Testament, what's he correcting? And what makes most sense to me, and I saw this in a number of commentators, is that he's not correcting the Old Testament, but he's correcting the way the scribes and Pharisees had distorted the Old Testament. The scribes and Pharisees had taken the Old Testament and twisted it into something that bore no resemblance to what God had put in the Old Testament. They taught that as long as you didn't murder anybody, be angry, insult them, tell them you jerk, you idiot, whatever. Just Did you murder anybody? No, okay, you're fine then. I don't want to overstate it, but the scribes and Pharisees very much had a focus on the outer and they neglected the, the inner. Their own heart for God, their own heart for other people, they neglected that. And that's what Jesus is correcting here. So he's not correcting the Old Testament in this section. He's correcting the scribes and Pharisees' distortion of the Old Testament. Okay? So with that in mind, what's Jesus calling us to do in this passage? Here he's telling us kingdom people, people who've, been, who've come to him poor in spirit, who've received the kingdom, his forgiveness, his heart-changing power, his presence comforting us. How does he want us to live? In this section, what's he saying? And, and just notice, first of all, did you catch this? Three times in this paragraph, he talks about brothers. Did you notice that? Verse 22, everyone who's angry with his brother. Verse 23, you remember that your brother has something against you. Verse 24, be reconciled to your brother. Okay, why, why this emphasis on, on your brothers? And when Jesus talks about brothers, usually he's talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's talking about your spiritual family. He's talking about the church body. He's talking about the body of Christ here. Now, what Jesus says in this section applies to all of our relationships, people who are believers and who are not believers. 
But Jesus especially wants to focus in here on our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So think about, here we are, just, this is who we're talking about, okay? real flesh and blood, not people in theory, the person sitting next to you, okay? your husband, your wife, your kids, right? the people in your home group, the people you know, in each of these sections. This is what we're focusing on. What he says here, does what he says here apply to unbelievers? Yes. Your relationship with them, it applies. But he's focusing on our relationship with fellow believers. And he calls us to four specific actions in our relationships with with unbelievers, yes, but he's especially focusing on believers. Four specific actions. The first one, look at the beginning of verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. First point, don't be angry with your, your brothers and sisters in the faith. Okay, now, what's anger? Anger is when you're, when you're ticked off at somebody, right? You're upset at someone. You're frustrated with them. I mean, maybe maybe uh, you, you're, you're a, a gal in the home group and you were going to meet a, another woman at, the home, uh, at Starbucks, maybe from your home group, and she forgot. And you had lots to get done that day and you carved out time specially to get this time and she forgot and you wasted that time and you could be upset, Okay. Or, uh, I don't know, what else? Like maybe, maybe you just got your hair cut and somebody in the home group says, uh, that, that looks kind of dorky, you know? And just, the, ah, thanks, you know? So you could feel upset about that, kind of feel frustrated about that. Or maybe it's, uh, it's home group night, just another home group example, and you know, you're in line for the potluck and you're eyeing that, that bowl of spaghetti and meatballs. It's looking good. And the guy in front of you empties the bowl onto his plate and walks away with it all. Okay, now that, that would be a little frustrating. Okay, so there's, there's dozens and dozens of dozens of times where we can feel upset, feel frustrated, feel angry. Are you kind of getting in touch with what, with what anger is about here? Now, of course, there's something called righteous anger and there's unrighteous anger. Helpful to make this distinction. Jesus is said to be angry at people in Mark chapter 3. Remember the setting? He was there, it was the Sabbath, and he was in the synagogue, in the temple, actually. And there's a man there with a withered hand. So again, think of this, either from birth or from some terrible accident, but his hand was kind of like a claw. Okay, he couldn't work. Uh, it, it, was, it brought some ostracism. It was a terrible thing to have to live life with. Here's this man with the tragedy of this withered hand that he has. And Jesus knows that the scribes and Pharisees, they're thinking, you shouldn't heal anybody on the Sabbath. This is the Sabbath. This is God's day. Okay, we don't do any work on the Sabbath. Don't you dare heal him. And Mark says, Jesus looked at them with anger. <sighs> anger. It's the real word anger. Okay, Jesus, our Jesus, who we love, looked at them with anger. Okay, so, and that's righteous anger, though. So what's the difference between between righteous anger and, and unrighteous anger. And this isn't real technical, but here's what, here's I mean, see if this makes sense to you. Anger is more likely to be unrighteous when it's about you and your well-being, and it's more likely to be righteous when it's about others' well-being or God's glory. Okay, More or less likely, this, isn't, this is not an ironclad formula, but it's, just, it's more likely to be righteous when it's about God's glory and others' well-being. So when Jesus is angry at the scribes and, Pharisee, at the scribes and Pharisees, who was that anger about? The withered man not, not being healed. Of course, you know the story, Jesus heals him, right? He's angry and he says, you're healed. 
Okay, so he healed him, but Jesus was angry for this man's sake that these people would think to not let him be healed because of the Sabbath. And so it was about the other man, and that made Jesus' anger righteous. But now when I'm sitting in line and I'm watching the spaghetti meatballs disappear, uh, what's that anger about? Me, okay? More likely that's not, not righteous anger. So here, Jesus is talking about unrighteous anger. And so look at what he says about it. This is very sobering. Verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What judgment is he talking about? Well, notice, just keep going in verse 22, he also talks about being liable to the council, and then he talks about, at the end of verse 22, being liable to the hell of fire, to hell. So he's not talking about human judgment here. He's talking about God's judgment. This is an astonishing statement. This is one that you can easily just like read over, yeah, 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 yeah. You should just, like your jaw should be dropping at this point. Anybody here not been angry this last week? Okay. I have been, and you have been. And Jesus says, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Okay, now one of our commitments here at Mercy Hill is to... Do all we can not to water down the Bible. We just want to let it speak. Take it at face value. This is one of those passages where it's tempting to want to water it down. Okay? But look at what Jesus says. If we have unrighteous anger, we are liable to God's judgment. Now, we need to take the whole Sermon on the Mount and, and all of Jesus' teaching, but we can... We can Go back to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount because what this means is if you recognize that you're angry and if you recognize that that's a reflection of being poor in spirit and you come before the Lord Jesus and you say, here I am, my anger shows how poor in spirit I am. I'm sorry, help me. What will he do? He will assure you again of your forgiveness through the cross. He will increase his heart-changing power upon you. He will pour his Holy Spirit out upon you and start to satisfy you and strengthen you and comfort you. And you will see the anger in your life start to diminish when we take the very first beatitude. But what Jesus is doing by saying we're going to be liable to judgment is he wants to help us understand how serious it would be if you were angry and did nothing about it. That's what he wants us to feel. If we're angry and do nothing about it, we don't come before the Lord Jesus and say, here I am, help me. See, every time we come before the Lord Jesus, acknowledging a poor in spirit, he will meet us, he will help us, he will forgive us, he will change us, we'll be met. But if we, if we harbor anger in our lives and, and, not, let it, and not, let it, not, not bring it before him, then we will be liable for, for judgment. Now why? Why is anger such a serious thing? Well, okay, think about the spaghetti and meatballs. I use that illustration, so just home in on that one. If I'm angry, seething at this guy who who emptied all the uh, spaghetti and meatballs on his plate, if I'm angry about that, what at that moment am I trusting for my heart satisfaction? Really, Really? Spaghetti and meatballs? You think I would trust spaghetti and meatballs for my heart satisfaction? Has anybody ever trusted food for your heart satisfaction? Okay, just, just, just all of us, all right, or, or, or most of us. And so who, at that moment, am I not trusting for my heart satisfaction? Who am I not trusting? Okay, it's kind of a goofy example, but do, do you get the point? 
Every time I have unrighteous anger, I'm trusting something else besides Jesus. I've put Jesus aside, and I'm bowing down before some other altar, okay, with unrighteous, unrighteous anger. And so if my life is marked by unrighteous anger, and I let the sun go down on my anger, like Paul says we must not do, and I give Satan a foothold, which Paul says is what will happen if we do that, and I don't bring my anger before the Lord, then that shows that my life is being lived without trusting Jesus Christ. That's what it shows. And if my life is lived without trusting Jesus Christ, then unless something changes, I'm not saved, because we're saved by faith by trusting him. And so Jesus wants to, to jolt us. A little thing like anger, liable to God's judgment? Are you kidding me? He would say, I'm not kidding you. It's not a little thing. We're talking about the heart here. We're talking about who you trust. And so his whole purpose in, in talking about being liable for judgment is so that we would see his arms are open for us to come to him with our anger and even in our anger and say, Jesus, here I am. I'm poor in spirit again. I'm always poor in spirit. Here I am again. Help me. Meet me. Change my heart. Satisfy me. Lift this anger off of me. I need you to come. And every time we do that, he will. You'll experience that. So that's the first thing Jesus calls us to do. Don't be angry with your brothers and sisters. Okay, second, it says don't insult your brothers and sisters. Look at verse, the end of verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now that, the fact that he's talking about hell there shows that that council, he's talking about God's judgment council here. I mean, how often do we do this calling somebody an idiot? I mean, how often do we do this? Way too often. This, isn't a, this is a shocking statement that Jesus makes here. I just try to think of an example. Let's say that you've got some friends and uh, you've planned a miniature golf outing and somebody's planned it and you're all invited to come. Somebody planned this miniature golf outing so you've set aside time and you drive there and, and when you get there, you discover the place is closed. The guy who planned the miniature golf outing didn't call ahead to find out when it's open. And you get back in your car, slam the door, and say, what an idiot. Anybody ever talk that way? Okay? Outside? Inside? I think we probably do. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. And it might sound like nothing, but again, look at what he says in verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That's really serious, isn't it? He, he wants us to, to feel the seriousness of this. Now, again, his point is we can turn to him in our frustration and in our pain, acknowledge that we're poor in spirit, and he will meet us. He'll just assure us of forgiveness. His resurrection power will start to change us. We'll sense his comfort. He's in control of the miniature golf course being closed. The guy should have called ahead, yes, but he's in, God's in control. I can be at peace about this. But the reason he talks about being liable to the council of the hell of fire is, is, to, is to jolt us with the fact of what happens. If, if that's the pattern of our lives, is seeing people as idiots and calling people idiots. I mean, just think about it like this. If you're in the car, you slam the car door and you say, what an idiot. What's in your heart at that point in time? Is, is pride in your heart? Is arrogance in your heart? I think so. What's not in your heart at that point in time? At that point in time, are you sensing that you're at the foot of the cross, uh, a, a sinner forgiven by Christ, deserving hell but receiving everything, loving Jesus? See, 
Would you agree with this? Is it psychologically impossible to be at the foot of the cross and then look at a brother next to you at the foot of the cross and say, you idiot. Is that possible psychologically? I don't think it is. Because when you're at the foot of the cross, you're broken. And you're an idiot, right? Because you've sinned. That's, that's, that's what you're seeing mostly. And when I'm calling somebody else an idiot, I'm not seeing that I'm, I'm poor in spirit anymore. So do you see how dangerous this is? A, a little thing like our words, Jesus says the mouth speaks out of the fullness of the heart. Calling somebody an idiot, it's not about them. That's more about your own heart and what's going on at that point in time. Are you feeling this? I mean, Jesus is just, this is awesome teaching. Because, well, I'll get, I'll get to why in a moment. So what, what should we do then? Okay, so you've just, you've got a pattern of, the guy is going really slow in the fast lane. And what are you, what are you tempted to say? I'm an idiot, right? Okay. Or pulling in front of you, whatever it might be. Driving would be a special area in which we want to apply this passage. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Not that I'm listening. I'm not listening to you. That's what I'm saying. Okay. All right. So, but Jesus wants us to turn to him as we are and say, help me. I'm feeling proud. I'm feeling arrogant. I'm feeling boastful. Now I'm feeling cocky right now. I'm not. I shouldn't feel that way. I'm, I'm poor in spirit. Change me. Help me. Wash me. Cleanse me. He will every time you come to him. Come to him. Don't try to get over your heart first. Bring your heart to him. He will transform it. So first thing is don't be angry. Second is don't insult. And then third, seek reconciliation. Verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Okay, so Jesus is talking about, I mean, at, at the time when Jesus wrote this, the Jerusalem temple was still there, still standing, and God's people would regularly bring their gifts to the temple as an act of worship. Very, very important. And, and, and God's people understood the, the, the huge importance of worship. Worship was so important to worship God, to, to bless his name. It's like we've, we've been doing here this morning. To, I mean, worship is of the very highest importance. But what Jesus says here would have shocked his listeners because what it shows is that there, that there may be something even more important than worship. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? Let's bring it into contemporary times. Let's say you're, you're driving to Mercy Hill Church on a Sunday morning, and on the way you remember somebody who you've hurt, who used to be here, but you hurt them, they left, and now they're, they're going to some other church, let's say, for example. Okay? So you remember, you're driving here to worship, worship the Lord, you want to worship Jesus Christ, and you remember this person who you've hurt. What would Jesus tell you to do? Stop the car. Turn around. Drive to whatever church that person is now going to. Find them. Seek reconciliation with them. Tell them you're sorry. Ask for their forgiveness. Express your love for them. Do whatever you can. You may not be able to be reconciled. You can do your part and see what, how they respond. Right? But all you can do is do your part. You're trying to be reconciled with them. So do, do you see how, how absolutely important this is? So just ask yourself, and this, this might really be powerful for some of you, but is there anybody that you know has something against you that you haven't taken steps to seek to be reconciled with them. Is there anybody like that? 
There should be nobody like that in your life. Might mean calling them if they live a long ways away. Might be sending them an email. Might be saying, can we talk? See, there, there should be nobody in our lives that we... And again, this isn't that you've got something against them. That's a, he's already talked about those. That's the first two. This is where they've got something against you. And Jesus would say, go to them and put everything else aside. This is what's crucial to do. And so I just would encourage you. And, and again, do, do you sense the urgency? He doesn't say, you know, do it after church. He says, do it before. Do it on your way. Stop. This is crucial to do. Are you feeling just how completely countercultural Jesus' teaching is here? I mean, you, you should be feeling like, whoa, this, this is a very different way to live. Are you feeling that? Because it is. I hope you're not feeling like, man, all these people are doing that. I'm the only one who's not. We've all got to work on this, okay? But I want you to feel how countercultural. If, if God's people could live this way in our Christ-centered communities with that kind of love and that kind of seeking reconciliation, people would be stunned as they watch that unity and that love. That'd be an amazing thing. So seek reconciliation. And the last one Jesus talks about is make amends. That's verses 25 and 26. This is a puzzling passage. Okay, I, I worked it and thought about it and read commentaries. And Let me read it and then I'll, I'll try to give you what I think is going on here. It sounds like Jesus all of a sudden shifts focus entirely to something else. I don't think he's shifting focus, but let me explain how this is the focus he's, he's having. Verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. He, he's talking here about owing somebody money. I should give some context maybe before I started to read it. You owe somebody money. And in that culture, if you owed somebody 20 bucks... Okay, and if you go to the judge and the judge says, do you owe 20 bucks? And you say, yes, so we'll go to jail. You'd go to jail for 20 bucks. Okay? And so you paid him back. All right? So this is very serious. We don't do, that, do it that way today, but that's how debt was handled back in that culture. So here's what Jesus says. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. All right? Like, just pay him back on the way. Wouldn't that make sense? Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny. Okay, what's Jesus? Why does he bring this up? Well, we should pay people back, but I think he's thinking much broader than that. This is an illustration. I think what he's saying is this. If it's this crucial to pay people back if you owe them money, how much more crucial is it to make amends with people who you owe on some emotional, psychological, relational level? Okay, so he, what he's calling us to is to make amends whenever we owe somebody anything. Money, yes, he would include that here, but he's using this illustration so that we understand that we need to make amends to people. So I just want to think of an illustration. Let's say that your in-laws are coming in from out of town this next uh, weekend, and, uh, and your lawnmower is broken, and your lawn's looking a little scruffy, and so let's say you borrow a lawnmower from somebody here at Mercy Hill Church, and so... Uh, they say, sure, you can borrow my lawnmower. So you mow the lawn, and, and it's looking spiffy. Okay, great. Mm. In-laws, going to be impressed. Good work, okay? But then your son backs out of the, of, the, of, the, of the garage and drives over the lawnmower that you borrowed from somebody. Okay, so there you are, destroyed lawnmower. And you take the destroyed lawnmower back to the guy you borrowed from Saddam. And I'm so sorry, my son ran over it, and it's, it's, it's wrecked. Um, 
gosh, I'm, just, I'm really sorry. You know, and then you've got all these things to do about your in-laws coming, so you take off and, and do all these things, and you forget all about it. So it's obvious what you should do, right? What, what should you do? Replace the lawnmower. Okay, give them the money. Say, can I go buy your, you know, what can I do? I, I, you, you, would, you would do that, right? You should make up for it, all right, on those kinds of things. And so in the same way, if you've hurt someone, make amends. Go and make an apology. Ask them to forgive you. Tell them, I wouldn't do that again. I'm sorry. Make amends. Do that. Make amends. Go out of your way to to heal fractured relationships. Build bridges. Make amends. That's what Jesus is calling us to do here. So there's really four, four actions he's calling us to take. Don't be angry with your brothers and sisters. Again, this applies to everyone, but it's especially focusing in right here, the nitty-gritty of, of life with brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Don't be angry. Don't insult them. Seek reconciliation and make amends. Okay? Four, four things he's calling us to do. Now, what questions does that raise? Here's why I like to open up for questions is because I, I find it almost every week it is so helpful because we're a community here. We've all got the scriptures. The scriptures are the authority. My job is to help you see the scriptures and to wrestle with it. And God may give you insight into something that I haven't seen. Okay, and that's a win. Um, and and try, to, try to phrase your... Try to make it a question as opposed to a statement because that'll help us be able to focus in on what's going on. So what questions does this raise in terms of the passage? Or like how do you live this out? Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this together. So what what questions does this raise? Okay, so the accuser doesn't have a ground for the accusation. What should you do? So they've got something against you, but they're wrong. Pray for them. Bow out as graciously as you can. Stop praying. I mean, and don't stop praying. Yeah, okay, so, so pray for them. Jesus taught us to do that. Okay. Has anybody... Um, another thought I think of too, in addition to that, would be to go to the person and explain, and, and maybe explain that um, you, you you you're concerned that they've got something against you, but you don't you don't think they've understood it, or you don't you don't think that they have grounds for it. You want to be as gracious as you can. Would, has anybody tried that? And does that that make sense? I think that that could be helpful. You want to be very gracious about it. Okay. Okay. So go to them and, and work it out. So pray for them. Go to them, try to explain it, try to work it out. Yes, and he will work in that situation, won't he? He will. He totally will. We asked about you go to somebody and they don't think they have, they they say they don't have anything against you, but you've seen from their behavior that it sounds like they do. I mean, you can say, you know, it it looks to me, I may be wrong, but it looks to me like like maybe you you are angry at me or have something against me, and I and I, I I long to have this worked out. Maybe I've done something wrong I'm not aware of. I'd love to hear what that is. I mean I want to hear what that is. I, I I'm concerned. I want to I want to have there be love here and be a bridge here. That's really all you can do, right? And you pray and 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 you know so. Okay, I I agree. I totally agree. You know my my policy is now I encourage all of you to use email for like information and and positive messages. Don't use e- don't ever use email for anything of a, of a even a lovingly critical nature. It's just it it just is hard easily misunderstood. Call the person or best go to the person, please. That'll really help. You know so yes, delete that off the recording about the email. Don't anybody do the email thing. Okay, all right, okay. Um,
I think I think what he means is um, quickly deal with your anger, and the way we the way we deal with our anger is by bringing it to the Lord. Uh, I mean, the root. There's all kinds of other issues, but the root issue of my anger is that somebody has cost me something. And I'm seeing that as determinative for my joy and my future. And that's not determinative for my joy and my future. God is. But I'm not seeing God. I'm just seeing spaghetti and meatballs, you know? Okay? And so what I need to do is I need to say, Lord, I'm not seeing you now. And again, that's kind of a shallow, goofy illustration. We're talking about marriages. We're talking about affairs. We're talking about money. We're talking about dishonesty. I mean, we're talking about abuse. I mean, there's deep, weighty issues why people can be angry. But in those very serious cases, the answer is to come before the Lord and say, help me. I want to trust you. It doesn't mean you're saying that the person didn't do something wrong. It doesn't mean you'd never go to them and and talk to them about it. But it means that in your heart attitude, you're dealing with it before the Lord. And and the Holy Spirit will come as you pray, as you ask him to help you, as you set your heart upon who Jesus Christ is and his promises to you. You've experienced this. The Holy Spirit will come and you will feel your anger diminish as your peace in the Lord grows. I mean, you'll feel that. I remember I had a client in real estate who uh, was just completely dishonest and wasted my time and cost me a lot of money. And I, I made the mistake of first trying to go to her and talk it through. Big mistake. Because part of my motivation was, I'll feel better once she admits that she did something wrong. She didn't do anything wrong. I did nothing wrong, she says. <laughs> my anger was not going down. And my anger was going up. And I said a couple of things I shouldn't. And then I realized it was time to go. And so I left. But when I brought it before the Lord, and said, this person did something completely wrong to me. And it's cost me their reputation with other agents and money and uh, time. But you are in control. Genesis 50.20 is my go-to verse for when other people have hurt me. Remember the story Joseph says to his brothers who had sold him into slavery in Egypt for years. What does Joseph say? You meant this for evil. Straight up. He doesn't mince words. You meant this for evil. He was loving them. They were all reconciled. But you meant this for evil. But God meant this for good. That's my heart healing verse for when people hurt me. And the Lord will heal your heart because you, this doesn't make what they did right. They meant it for evil. That's another issue. may need to deal with that. But I can trust you in this. Great good is coming to me through and in this pain. Okay, Am I even coming close to answering your question? What did you ask? How to not let the sun go down in your anger? The point is, deal with it immediately. Don't harbor anger. Listen, you've experienced just what Ernie was saying. If you harbor anger, what Paul says in the next verse, you'll give Satan a foothold. Satan's trying to climb into your heart. Okay, keep slipping. Ah, keep slipping. You harbor anger overnight. Ah, foothold. Here we go. I'm coming in. Right? You've experienced how anger can twist you. And it can deceive you, and it, it will grow. It will always grow. Time does not heal anger. Jesus heals anger. And that's really good. And we're not doormats, so it was good for you to talk to the people about, to help them understand about lines and, and waiting and stuff, right? Nothing wrong with that at all.
And my encouragement, um, it means, it, you, didn't, you didn't go to them in anger, right? You weren't venting. You weren't, ah, blah, 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 right? So, I mean, you had, you had already dealt with your heart at, to some extent at that point, or were dealing with it in process. Because what I've found is that I get in trouble if I go to the person thinking that talking to them is going to help my anger. It may. It may not. Okay? First, talk to Jesus. He will always help you with your anger, okay? Always. Talk to him. And then you may need to go to the person and confront people on things, okay? So don't hear that we're doormats here, right? But hear that we go to Jesus. He brings peace. He'll bring strength. And you'll be able to go to them and free from anger to say, you know, there's, in this culture, there's lines and people wait, right? And this is how we work. So could you do that? Because everybody's waiting here for you and you're, you're, you're butting in line here. I mean, maybe be a little more gracious than that, but that's the point, right? Okay. All right, we've got to stop for the sake of time. So let, let me just end with this. Think of what it would be like to be part of a group of people where whenever anyone got angry, they, they immediately took it to the Lord. Didn't let the sun go down on it. They dealt with it. And they didn't insult each other. And they always sought to be reconciled. And they always made amends whenever there was any hurt. Think of what it would be like to be part of a group of people who loved in that way and who had unity in that way. That's church life, according to Jesus. That's body of Christ. That's what we're trying to live in our home groups. Think of what it would be like to be part of a group of people who said, this is how we're going to seek to live with each other. That's what we're here saying at Mercy Hill. This is how we are seeking to live here with each other. Okay, real flesh and blood, sinful people like we all are, okay? We're gonna, and we're going to have all kinds of opportunities to not let the sun go down in our anger and to seek to do reconciliation. This will happen. But if we follow what Jesus says, then think of the love that will be here and think of what will happen when people who don't know Christ are invited in to a, a home group game night or here on a Sunday morning and they see the love and they see the unity, they will see Jesus. So let's live this way. But now, there's only one way we can live this way. It's going back to the very first beatitude. To come before Jesus as poor in spirit, saying, I can't do this apart from you. Help me. Strengthen me. Forgive me. Satisfy me. And he will. Every time. Let's stand together and pray. I just want to do this. Come on up here and stand up here if you have somebody you need to, something you need to do after this morning. Okay, just come on up and I want to pray over you. So come on up. You've got to make amends. You've got to seek reconciliation. Let's just have you up here. We want to pray for you and ask God to do an amazing work. So I'm assuming there's, there's a couple, at least. Okay, a couple couples. So coming up, if you've got something you just feel like God's stirring you to do, I want to pray. So Lord, I pray that you'd come upon these that are here right now. Let's, let's just all pray. Join me in praying for them. Lord, would you right now, I pray for more of your peace. I pray for more assurance that you are calling them to take whatever step it is that you've put upon their hearts. I pray, Lord, that they could... Be strong and confident in you and that you would work a miracle as they take whatever step you're calling them to take. Thank you for their responsiveness, Lord, to your leading and to your your nudgings. And I pray that you would meet them, that you would strengthen them, that you would satisfy them, that you would work through them, that you would bring reconciliation, that you'd bring restoration, that they could make amends and that the, the relationships would be healed. So, Lord, please, I pray that you would do this. And I I pray for all of us now, Lord. Let us be quick to bring anger to you so that you can heal our hearts. And let us be quick.
quick to, to go back to being at the foot of the cross so the insults wouldn't be felt in our hearts and spoken with our lips. And because of your grace towards us, let us be quick to seek reconciliation and to make amends. We want here, Lord Jesus, to, to shine with your love. We, we want to honor you with our love, not dishonor you with our anger or our insults or our estrangement from each other. We want to honor you with our love. So strengthen us in this and help us in this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.